Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Sarah Hahn, professor of law at Washington Lee University. We'll be discussing your article, Corporate Governance and the Feminization of Capital, which is forthcoming in the Stanford Law Review. I'll have a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Sarah, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Andrew. Sarah, before we jump to this paper, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your scholarly agenda as a legal historian. You do really interesting archival work in business and economic history. And I wondered if you could uh, tell me and, and tell the listeners a little bit about what motivates you to do that work. How do you identify the subjects that you decide to write about? For example, how did you identify this subject to write about? I have an undergraduate degree in history and a JD. I'm not a PhD historian. And this paper, I guess, is my second sort of historical paper. This one came out of a book project. So in 2019, 2020, I went on sabbatical and I was working on a book that I thought was going to be about the movement for corporate democracy. So I wanted to understand what that movement was back in the beginning of the 20th century and how it evolved and eventually failed, right? And that book project ended up getting kind of backburnered when I stumbled upon the history that I tell in this paper. So while I was doing all this historical research for that book, And eventually that book kind of became more about the power struggle that was playing out between small shareholders and managers. While I was doing all that historical research, I kept stumbling on articles about how women were taking over stockholding and women were invading the capital markets. And I kept puzzling over these articles and I didn't believe them. I thought they were wrong and strange and I was very skeptical. And then one day I read an article that referred to how a company had disclosed the gender of its stockholders in its annual report. And this was an important moment because it was sort of an aha moment for me because I thought that's verifiable, right? That's either true or it's false. And I can look to the annual report and see if it's true. And so at the 2020 AALS annual meeting, which was in Washington, D.C., I bowed out of the annual meeting and went over to the Library of Congress. And I went up to this dusty attic where they hold the microforms of historic annual reports and started going through them. And much to my surprise, I discovered that, yeah, it was true that this particular company had disclosed the gender of its stockholders in its annual report and that other companies were doing this too, and they were doing it commonly, and that there were graphs and charts. And so as soon as I saw that, I mean, I was literally in this dusty attic, and I was having this watershed moment where I realized I had to put my book project, you know, to the side and focus a little bit more on the feminization of capital. I love that history, that personal history of your discovering the subject. And as legal scholars, we might find ourselves working on a database or with a data set, something like that, but we might not find ourselves in a dusty attic all that often. Now, this question is pretty broad, but the title of your article is pretty striking. And I wondered if you could maybe introduce what you mean by the feminization of capital. You've alluded to it a little bit, but in maybe giving us an overview of what that title means, what it captures, uh, if you could give listeners an overview of the history 
century you cover in this paper. So during the first half of the 20th century, what was the status of women as stockholders and what motivated them as stockholders? How did this economic status track women's claims to greater political and social rights during this period? The core insight of the paper is that the identity of the human actors who were shareholders in public companies mattered during this time to the way that corporate theorists were thinking about the role of shareholders. So there was a connection between who the shareholders were, and especially their gender, and what the theorists thought shareholders' role should be in corporate organization. So when I talk about the feminization of capital, I'm referring to capital as the group of human actors who own stock in public companies. So I'm using the term capital similarly to how we might use the term labor, right, to mean workers, and management to mean the human people who were doing the managing. In 1900, so at the turn of the 20th century, stockholding was something that was done by men, mainly. It was a majority male. And by the middle of the 20th century, by 1956 for sure, stockholding was something that was mostly done by women and stockholding was majority female, talking again on a a per capita basis. This data uh, is not my original data. It actually comes from the New York Stock Exchange. So in the 1950s, the New York Stock Exchange started doing these massive stockholder censuses where they looked at shareholder demographic data, again, in part because the identity, the demographics of who shareholders were was understood to matter to corporate organization. And it was the New York Stock Exchange's 1956 census that first concluded that women were a majority of public company stockholders across the market. But it's important to understand that at many large blue chip public companies, women were actually a majority of stockholders long before the 1950s. So for example, we know that at AT AT&T, women were a majority of stockholders by at least 1910. Women stockholders outnumbered men at General Electric and the Pennsylvania Railroad by the late 1920s. And women outnumbered men among stockholders at US Steel by 1950. So Another possible way to think about capital, of course, is to think about pro rata shareholdings. The problem with that in the context of my historical project is that there's actually not very much data about pro rata shareholdings by gender. So that was a bit of a problem as I went back to study that. The New York Stock Exchange censuses in the 50s consistently found that the average man held more stock than the average woman stockholder. So I think across the market, it looks like women probably never owned more stock than men, but at particular companies, they definitely did. So for example, because I have been able to find data on specific companies, either because the companies disclosed the data in their annual reports, or in some cases, there was investigative reporting that was done on the gender of stockholdings that produced pro rata data. We know that, for example, at American Sugar Refining Company, which was like big sugar of its day, women owned more stock at that company than men by 1909. At AT AT&T, it was at least by the late 1940s. It might have been before that. And U.S. Steel is an interesting example because, as I mentioned before, women first outnumbered men as stockholders at U.S steel in 1950, their holdings of common stock first exceeded the holdings of men in 1956. So we can point to specific companies where women owned more stock than men. But the problem is I don't have this sort of data across the market to make broader generalizations. And then, you know, what what was motivating women to move into stock holding at such a high rate? I mean, this is a question that I get a lot. I think it's possibly 
really a question for a social historian. But I do offer an economic rationale in the paper during this whole period. So I mostly focus on first half of the 20th century. When women went out into the labor market, their wages were strongly discounted for their gender. But the return on a share of stock was not discounted in any way on the basis of who owned the stock. So stock holding and securities investment generally was one of the few ways that women could grow their wealth on an equal footing as men, sort of in the same way that men did. And then it's also really interesting, this question about women's political rights is really interesting. Women could vote as corporate citizens long before they could vote as political citizens in the United States. So even though there were coverture laws in existence in the 19th century, we know that in New York, a statute was passed in 1851 that clarified that married women could own and vote their own stock. And of course, women don't end up getting the political vote until the 19th Amendment is ratified in 1920. But women were voting at corporate meetings as stockholders long before 1920. And there's plenty of evidence that women were attending meetings. They were active in meetings, speaking in meetings. They were making resolutions and motions. And so there's sort of this interesting story. I don't even get into it as much as I would like to get into it in this paper. This interesting story about the difference between women's ability to function as political citizens versus citizens in corporate governance. At the top of the show, you mentioned that this paper really stems from a book project that you're working on about the role of smaller shareholders in corporate governance. Here, you note that you found that women were a significant block of shareholders in many companies, and in some companies, they held an outright majority of shares. How did this translate to their exercise of shareholder power, and how did managers and boards respond to their presence within the capital structure? It's really interesting because, you know, I document in the paper the strength of women as a shareholding demographic. And yet women were never able to successfully translate that into real power, especially managerial power. Women never really coalesced into an interest group of stockholders that voted together. After World War II, there was this nascent movement for women's economic suffrage, and it was almost created by a shareholder activist named Wilma Soss. So she formed an organization of women stockholders, and she collected and voted proxies from women and men as part of a campaign that she waged to put women on boards of directors and also to pursue other reforms that were sort of corporate democracy reforms, including cumulative voting, reforms that she thought would either advance women's rights or that would help the corporate democracy movement. But her efforts really didn't pay off. After small shareholders started having some success after World War II, so there was Wilma Sauce and sort of women stockholders, but there were also other small stockholders pushing other reforms they started to have some success. They were bringing resolutions and the voting support for them was increasing year after year. The shareholders started to get what I would describe as very strong pushback from corporate management. So in most companies, demands by women stockholders to add women directors were just simply rejected. Male business leaders, I think, often didn't think that women had any place at the management table. Some of them were pretty explicit in saying this. I have some quotes to that effect in the paper. And then Eisenhower, he's elected in 1952, the end of 1952. He assumes the presidency in 1953. And by the end of 1953, 
Eisenhower's Security and Exchange Commission is changing the proxy rules in some ways that end up curbing the power of shareholder activists. And this had a real effect on women stockholders and other groups of small stockholders. And then more generally, corporate managers' practices regarding proxy solicitation and the voting of shareholders' proxies were very aggressive and very effective. And all of this just added up to the defeat, I think, of any effort by women stockholders to unify and flex their shareholding power. And of course, it also defeated more generally the social movement toward uh, corporate democracy. One of the key sources of data that you found in this paper was that government agencies, stock exchanges, companies themselves were tracking shareholder by gender. Major newspapers also reported on this topic. What motivated this activity? What made these statistics become of interest at the time? And when did these actors stop keeping and reporting this information? And did you find any reasons for why this information was no longer routinely taken and reported to the public? This to me was sort of the holy grail of my research, right? As soon as I saw that companies were tracking the gender of their stockholders and disclosing it in their annual reports, the very first question I had was, why? Why are they doing this? What information is it that business leaders think the gender of stockholding sheds on their business? And sadly, I have yet to stumble across any document or expression by a corporate leader that clearly addresses this. I can point to numerous disclosures in annual reports and graphs and charts where companies are disclosing comparative data about stockholder gender. I found a 1953 article in the Harvard Business Review where the author recommends that all companies disclose the gender of stockholders. And yet the article doesn't say why that information would be useful. And what I concluded from that actually was that the author believed it was self-evident to the reader of the Harvard Business Review in 1953 why business leaders would care about the gender of their stockholders. I mean, I think what was going on, frankly, is that business leaders were motivated by contemporaneous stereotypes about women and ideas about gender difference. Women during this whole period from 1900 to the 1950s were not considered to have the aptitude to really participate in business. So the fact that stockholding was feminizing probably suggested to business leaders that stockholders should not have much say in how business was run, right? The more feminized stockholders were, the more incompetent they were, sadly, to play a role in corporate governance. And in fact, of course, then this tracks with the way that corporate law was moving during this period. So coincidentally, power was being shifted away from shareholders during this whole period. And it was being shifted toward a group that was almost exclusively male corporate managers. So I was very surprised to learn, I was sort of fascinated by U.S. Steel because they disclosed the gender of their stockholders into the 1980s. It's interesting to look at their disclosures because women first surpass men on a per capita basis among stockholders in 1950. And that difference persists for decades at U.S. Steel. I don't know why they were still disclosing. They were an outlier. I don't know why they were still disclosing the gender of their stockholders into the 1980s. Most companies had stopped in the 1950s or 60s. I think some companies, and I'm thinking of AT&T, in particular, they had women stockholders showing up to meetings and making arguments about how there should be women on the board of directors because there were so many women stockholders. And I think that may have influenced some companies to stop, frankly, disclosing that information because it was being weaponized by 
women activists. And so it's really after the the 50s and 60s that the data kind of goes away. And then, of course, also that is the period where we start to see more of a focus on institutional investing. And so there's a conceptual shift away from caring about individual retail stockholders toward caring more about institutional investors. So these statistics may have been of interest because of, in part, gendered stereotypes. I wonder if we could delve into that a little bit deeper. What influence did this feminization of capital have on 20th century corporate and securities theory? In particular, you discuss a gendered link between the concepts of femininity and the corporate law theory of shareholder passivity. Could you maybe talk about that relationship a little bit? But half of my paper is actually devoted to surveying all of the ways in which the feminization of capital might have influenced corporate theory. And it is very much a survey. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on all of this at a theoretical level. The two most important subjects I think I touch on are the separation of ownership and control and then the idea of shareholder passivity. And both of these, I argue, were probably influenced, shaped by ideas of gender difference. So the separate spheres of corporate organization are the strong managers versus the weak owners. And of course, the separation of ownership and control is the basis of modern agency cost governance. It's familiar to any corporate law professor who's listening to this podcast. I argue that this construction more or less imported the separate spheres of gender difference to corporate theory. And of course, the separate spheres of gender difference would have been familiar to anyone of Berlian Means' era. I don't think gender difference explains everything about the separation of ownership and control, right? So I want to be careful to say that. But I also think we can't really understand the historical evolution of that idea without appreciating how it reinforced ideas of gender difference that were so powerful during that era. So on the one hand, you had corporate managers who were exclusively male, who were presented as active and strong and in control. And then on the other hand, you had corporate shareholders who were increasingly female, eventually a majority female, who were presented as weak and passive and lacking control. You get this kind of bilateral division within corporate organization. From that division, you get, of course, the trope of the passive stockholder. And so Berlian Means depicted the passive stockholder as a problem for the corporation. So they wrote that shareholders' passivity justified subordinating shareholders' interests to those of other stakeholders in the corporation, such as labor. Labor, of course, would have been disproportionately male, right, as opposed to shareholding by the 1930s. And then, of course, later, the law and economics movement comes in and it reconceptualizes shareholder passivity. The concept of shareholder passivity really took off after Berlian Means wrote about it. Law and economics comes in, reconceptualizes shareholder passivity, as a good thing. So Berlian Means had said it was a bad thing. Law and economics says, oh no, it's the solution to this problem of bounded resources. And shareholders are rationally passive. Above all, the rational shareholder should care nothing about corporate governance. They should not care about control rights. They should care only about stock prices and return on investment. So it's really interesting to think about shareholder passivity as this kind of morphing idea over time that originated in this 1930s kind of idea that shareholders were passive, which I suggest may have just frankly been about gender, right? Passivity was a concept in that time that was closely associated with women and femininity. It's even possible that when Berlian means use the word passive, 
to describe stock ownership in the modern corporation and private property, which was published in 1932, it's possible that their readers really just understood that they were talking about women. So that's something that I continue to look into and to, <laughs> to try to learn more about. And I have, I have to admit, I have a follow-on project actually about the trope of shareholder passivity because I want to talk a little bit more about how there's evidence that shareholders during this time really wanted to participate actively in corporate governance, but how corporate law never really developed any mechanisms that would have facilitated active participation by shareholders. Really, there was this whole turn away from that. And then you can really track that to the present day when I think we've seen this resurgence in interest in shareholder activism. There are a lot of people who own stock in companies that want to play more of a role and that want to be more active and that think actually that that activism is essential to business sort of heading in the right direction. So I will have more to say on the subject of shareholder passivity and probably the separation of ownership and control as well. So we'll look forward to those papers and maybe toward the end of this conversation, we can talk a little bit about the way forward from this research. A few minutes ago, you mentioned 1950s, 1960s, firms were starting to turn their attention away from individual shareholders toward institutional shareholders. And you spend a good amount of time in the paper tracing a transition from the feminization of capital to the institutionalization of capital. What do you mean by that, uh, the institutionalization of capital? What impacts did it have on corporate law and corporate governance? And about when did we start seeing it happen? In some ways, this is one of the more provocative points that I make in this paper, that the rise of institutional investing, which really starts to happen in the 1970s and after, was essentially gendered in its effect. So by that time, women made up more than half of retail stockholders, and they were in a position to vote their stock. But then you get the de-retailization of stock in which people essentially switched from holding stock as individuals to holding stock through intermediaries like investment funds and pension funds. And I argue that one way to think about this is that it essentially restored male voting control over a lot of women's stock. That's because fund managers and brokers and bankers who were voting that stock were almost exclusively men. But the beneficial holders of a bunch of that stock were women, right? And fund management jobs are still dominated to this very day by men. In the article, I give the example of the California State Teacher Retirement Fund, which is one of the largest public pension funds in the United States. The beneficiaries of that fund, of course, are K-12 teachers. 70% of them are women. But the fund managers who vote the stock are reportedly 64% male, and that is today. So obviously, this was more skewed decades ago. The rise of institutional investing didn't really take off until the 1970s or later in terms of voting strength. But there was a shift in attention, particularly in the literature, the academic literature. There was a shift toward paying attention to institutional investors before that happened. And there's a writer that I quote in the paper, an academic who wrote in 1963 that he felt the field was giving disproportionate attention to institutional investors when individual holders really held most of the voting power. And he's sort of puzzling over why that might be. So again, I don't know that gender bias was playing a role in that shift of attention or focus, but it is a fact that there is almost nothing in the economics literature, the corporate law literature, or the business management literature 
that discusses women shareholders at all. It's completely missing or erased from the literature. And so if you're just looking at the academic literature, you wouldn't even know women were there. It just suddenly looks like institutional investing becomes super, super important. So this writer was saying, well, they're not important yet. And I think this is an issue that deserves greater consideration than I've been able to give it in the article. We live now in an era of institutional investing. So I think that makes it particularly interesting to a current audience. This is a weighty article in part because it opens up so many different avenues and so many different questions. And you allude to some of your follow-on projects earlier in this conversation, but I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about how this article points the way forward for research by yourself or others. What questions does it really leave to be studied? And are there any key takeaways that you'd like listeners and readers to have from this paper? Well, I mean, I have a lot to say on this. I have been really surprised by what my research turned up on this subject. And what that tells me is I think that there is still a lot of interesting historical work that can be done on the origin and evolution of modern corporate capitalism that might surprise us. I mean, I think that this history is fertile ground for all kinds of new work. So I would really encourage business law academics like myself and certainly historians, to delve into this history. And no one should feel like we've worked over this history and we kind of know it all really well. I think we don't really have our hands around it, honestly. I started a different book project, and I'm still kind of committed to that book project. And it's taking me in some different directions. So I want to wrap that up. But this article is probably the genesis of a new very academic book project. I mean, a lot of readers have said to me, you know, I just want to know more and more and more about this. How did this happen? Why haven't we heard about it? And what was really going on here? This article is like the tip of the iceberg in terms of answering those questions. So I think there's a book project here. But I also think that lots of other writers should consider thinking about gender and corporate history regarding whatever it is they're studying. I mean, just to take an example, you know, my article basically starts at 1900. But I think there's a really interesting story about women's shareholding in the 18th and 19th centuries that would be very much worth studying. And again, that might shed some light on women's political rights or their sort of social and political functioning in society before the 19th Amendment gives women political citizenship in 1920. I also think more recently, there's been a turn in corporate law scholarship that questions agency cost theory. And of course, agency cost theory originates in the separation of ownership and control. I think there is room to do some work there trying to figure out if the separation of ownership and control paradigm that's been so powerful and influential in our field, you know, if that is really useful anymore, and if maybe some aspects of gender bias were embedded in it decades ago, whether that matters, for example. I think also the paper suggests that there may be a really interesting story about board diversity and board gender diversity. We haven't really talked about that in this conversation And I haven't written in that literature, but, you know, there is a a really robust literature about board gender diversity. And there's been a movement in the last couple of decades to put more women on boards of directors. It's interesting because when I started studying this, I really had to go back to press accounts and to archives to try to figure out, for example, when 
women first became corporate directors at major companies. There's not a comprehensive history of that, as far as I know. And I think that that would be a really interesting history for someone to write. The whole story of how women fought to be included in corporate management were excluded. So my great hope is that this paper is going to catalyze more work by a lot of different scholars and different kinds of scholars to look more closely at gender and the origin of modern corporate capitalism. And I would love to make myself available to scholars to talk about, you know, I have a lot more research, honestly, than made it into this paper. I have a lot of research and I've been limited in some ways under COVID precautions. You know, I haven't been able to go to as many archives as I'd like to go to because they're closed to visitors. And so anyway, you know, I have a lot now. I probably will have more in the future. I'd love to share what I've got with other scholars and to share ideas about how you can do historical research in corporate law. I'm just really excited to have tried my hand at history. Not being a PhD historian, I was maybe a little nervous about that, but I think it's it's working out all right. Our guest today has been Sarah Hahn, professor of law at Washington Lee University. We've discussed her article, Corporate Governance and the Feminization of Capital, which is forthcoming in the Stanford Law Review. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Sarah, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.